You're listening to a podcast by BI Norwegian Business School. The banking system is at the center of monetary creation and destruction. It also plays a critical role as intermediator, channeling funds to their best of their abilities to those who have the most productive investment opportunities. Moreover, in recent years, banks have expanded into new types of businesses, such as insurance, asset management, and even the operation of real estate agencies. The strive for profit is at the center of all these activities. Bankers, wrote the economist Hyman Minsky in a 1989 article, are merchants of debt who strive to innovate in the assets they acquire and the liabilities they market. So how do banks work? What is their business model? And why are banks so prone to experience crisis? This podcast is dedicated to the understanding of financial bubbles, crashes and crises, their causes, characteristics, as well as their history. We have said earlier that in investigating these crises, we focus in particular on asset price bubbles and banking crises. Banks are thus at the very center of our inquiries. In order to understand financial crisis, we simply need to understand how banks work. We need to understand how banks manage their operations in order to increase their profit and at the same time reduce the risk of their operations. We also need to understand the role of banks in the economy more generally and how society at large have sought to control the operations of banks through regulation and supervision. Banking is risky business. Sometimes these risks are not handled well, causing banks and even entire banking systems to collapse. But as we will soon see, banking crises may take different forms. Sometimes the crisis is caused, caused by the bank's failure to handle what we call liquidity risk. Other times the crisis stems from failure to handle credit risk the risk of lenders defaulting on their loans. My name is Espen Ekberg. I'm a professor of economic history at BI Norwegian Business School, and I'm hosting this podcast on financial bubbles, crashes, and crises. And as you probably have understood already, today our subject is banking. And as always, on this podcast, I have invited an expert to help me out answering the various questions that I find important in order to understand banking and banking crisis. And so today I'm delighted to introduce you to Ruahov, I must say a real banker with more than 30 years of experience working in Norway's by far largest bank, DNB. So well, you just retired uh, after more than 30 years uh, working at DNB and actually you started a part-time position here at BI Norwegian Business School. So I thought we'd just start, just uh, you could tell me a little bit about your career and experience from banking. Yes, I worked now 31 years in, in DNB and started in 1989 as an equity analyst specializing on banks and insurance companies. And that led me to be watching the Nordic financial crisis very closely. Um, later on, I hold a, held a position as an advisor to the top group management regarding corporate finance. I worked with mergers and acquisitions in the late 90s, 1990s. And since the start of the 2000, I have been involved in uh, risk management in, in DNB, in particular trying to quantify risks and uh, 
dealing with uh, the bank's economic capital framework. And uh, my team was responsible for implementing the so-called IRB system in, in DNB, uh, the IRB system that is the internal models on credit risk, which are now the basis for the regulatory requirements. And uh, following the, the Basel II reform from 2007 onwards, all banks should have a process called ICAP. That is the internal capital adequacy assessment process. And in all years up till now, when I retired, I have been responsible for this process in DNB. And even since 2013, uh, where we got a new requirement, uh, we should develop a recovery plan for the bank. I have been in charge of that work as well. Okay, so uh, one of the things we are going to talk about, obviously, is banking risk. And so this is something you have worked a lot with. And uh, But uh, before we come to that... Uh, uh, of course, this podcast is about uh, it's banking in general, and uh, uh, you have your experience from Norwegian banking. Um, uh, but at the same time, you have been working with EU rules, uh, so I, I suspect you know quite a lot about European banking. And what would you say uh, is Norwegian banking very different from other countries' banking, or? Well, I, w- I would start saying that uh, the Nor- Norwegian banking is a part of a common Nordic banking market. So we are very much similar to what you can see in the neighboring countries. And we are also quite similar, I would say, to European banking in general. Uh, that makes us very different, though, from, from the U.S. system, which is quite different from, from the European banking system as well. And in what ways? Could you say a little bit about that? Well, I think it has to do with how you use the capital markets and securitizations and so on and so forth. Uh, that is much more a part of the financing of the, the U.S. corporates than you can see in, 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 in Europe, where the banking and the bank loans are the key source for funding to the, uh, the corporate sector. Okay, so there are obviously some differences between Nordic, European, and U.S. banking. But uh, our theme today, uh, the basic operations of banks and banking crisis, uh, I would uh, consider to be fairly similar uh, processes. So um, the first thing I would really uh, just talk about is uh, you have been working in a bank for you know 30 years. You must have thought that, oh, I have an important job. Uh, I work in a bank. Uh, why do we need banks, really? What what are their functions and most important functions in the economy, you think? Well, I think the main point of being a bank is is to to convert short-term deposits to long-term loans. So that's a transformation of maturity from short-term to long-term. That's a key part of what the banks are doing good to the society, so to say. That's one, one key, uh, key um, issue that the banks solve. Uh, another one is, of course, all the payments and the payment systems, uh, which is uh, where, where the banks uh, are a key contributor to, to a smooth payment system in, in the society. 
Yeah, so so uh, they play an important role in intermediation of of uh, of uh, in the economy and uh, uh, but but uh, then we just need to talk about how can they earn any money on doing this. Well, uh, the business model is to to take on uh, take in deposits and pay a little bit less in interest on the deposits side than you charge on your loans. I mean that's the basic uh, business model for for banks actually, and in in the market uh, there is always a premium for long term lending uh, compared with short term lending. So if you take short term deposits and make long term loans, you will have a natural interest difference due, due to that fact. Yeah, so this is the basic business model yeah. of banking, this uh, earning a, a net interest, you know, taking more interest on your deposit than, um, uh, or smaller interest on your deposit than you take on your loans, and so earning money. But um, but the banks do other things, as I said in the introduction. They, they Increasingly, at least in the last 20, 30 years, banks have started doing other kinds of, you know, services and products. And uh, So has this changed over time, this importance of this net interest uh, I would say strangely not, because uh, all banks at all times uh, focus to have less uh, dependence on the net interest side. They want to increase the fee income and other income. You can read annual reports <laughs> last 30 years, and most banks will state that they, they aim to, to change the mix to be less dependent on, on the net interest income. But uh, in the end, if you study the, uh, <laughs> the results over time, it's, it's quite amazing that uh, the net interest income seems to be very stable. It's uh, around two-thirds of, uh, of uh, total income in banks uh, here in, in Norway and in, in the Nordic area, more or less. Yeah, so, so all this talk about this financial supermarket uh, still, you know, the, the basic groceries are still <laughs> the lending. Yes. Yeah. Okay, because I, I, I would, um, that, it's, I did, that was really not the answer I wanted because I wanted you to say, oh yeah, we earn a lot of different things and we started doing all kinds of things and this has increased a lot the risks that we are dealing with. But, uh, uh, but I guess um, I just have to... to um, uh, to accept uh, that this is the case, that the banks still, you know, basic banking is still uh, um, the most important thing for banks, you know. Yeah, so taking deposits and making loans. Uh, but this is not a, um, a business that is without risk, of course. And you have worked with risk in banking uh, for a lot of your career. Uh, from my, from what I know, uh, banking uh, risk management started to become, you know, popular in banks in the mid '90s, and uh, banks started writing about all the kinds of the risks they were involved in and they had to deal with. And, uh, and I thought we should just spend some time talking about that because it's not really one risk; it's different kinds of risks and uh, related to different parts of the balance sheet, really. Um, so. If you can just take us through what you think are the most important risks that banks face and, and how do they deal with these risks? I think you can name the most important risks. That is the credit risk, the market risk and the operational risk. And we can take <laughs> and talk about one, one another one mm. in, in, in a row here. Mm. And uh, 
talking about the credit risk, which is uh, probably by far the most important risk for banks. Um, that the definition of credit risk is, is quite straightforward. It's it's not getting your money back again. So <laughs> simply the risk that uh, the people you have lent money out to will not pay back. Yes. Mm. So how do banks work work to avoid this uh, this from happening? Well, then you have to assess the risk before you do your loans. And what is the risk that uh, the customer will be able to pay back? And uh, I think in 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 that area, uh, the development with models and so on has been significant over the last uh, 20 years. I think banks didn't start working on classifying or do really risk assessment of the customers before in, in the middle of the 90s. While compared with the insurance industry, for, in, for instance, they have been modeling and tried to, by statistical models, uh, figure out which customer is the better risk for, uh, let's say, 100 years. So that's quite strange that the bank was so late, actually. And, uh, yeah, and then, uh, so uh, do you think that this, you know, will probably reduce the chances of having financial crisis, a banking crisis in the future? Yeah, I, th- I think that's uh, that's a key point to, to make, that if you study the uh, the Nordic banking crisis, for in- instance, then you saw that the, the banks hadn't done very much in, in, in the risk assessment area. Uh, they didn't know uh, what kind of customers uh, represented what kind of risks. And uh, they charged the same <laughs> interest from the high-risk customers and the low-risk customers. And they didn't follow up on, on the customers uh, after the, the loan was made. How, how did the, the corporate develop? And I think uh, now we are much better in, in shape regarding uh, the assessment before the loans are, are given, but we are also following up afterwards. And with the IRB system, you have on a yearly basis a risk assessment, at least uh, on a yearly basis, on all customers. So you know you know your credit risk in your balance much better all at, at all times now. Yeah. Okay. So the most important. So what you're saying really is that the most important risk the banks are facing is credit risk, and increasingly the last 25, 30 years, banks have been working seriously to to try and you know avoid this. Understand. Mm, understand. Understand the risks. Mm, mm. Yeah. But there are others, other risks. You mentioned uh, you mentioned market risk, for yeah. example. What is market risk? That is uh, the assets and liabilities you hold will be, uh, the value of that will depend on, on market prices. That is oil prices, its interest rates, its uh, currency rates and so on. So when these factors, these market prices uh, change, then the value of your assets and liability change, and then you have to, to book a gain or a, or a loss. And how can the banks work to, you know, deal with this type of risk? They, they well, some of the risks they, they openly take, uh, for instance, uh, interest rate risk to some extent, 
but you can hedge it, you can use derivatives to, to make your position neutral regarding different uh, price developments. So that's, that's market risk. Uh, would you say that uh, the same things have happened here as regarding credit risk, that banks have been, you know, are thinking more about this, understanding it better than before? Or? Uh, I think on the market risk side, uh, the banks was uh, somewhat more developed earlier. So they, they, they need, but but again, due to uh, to much more IT power over time, the way you assess market risk has been very much more uh, elevated over time. And uh, well, and up till two thousand and eight, I think uh, the quants in the financial industry they had a little bit too much uh, believe in their own <laughs> models and, and so on. Mm. I think that was one of the learning points from, from uh, the financial crisis actually that mm. uh, the value of, of sophisticated models, uh, they, they have their limits. Yeah. Okay, so that was the market risk, but uh, I, I and you talked about the credit risk. It's, it's in one way you can say it's a risk on the on the asset side of the of the balance sheet. The, what happens to the to the customers of the bank? But uh, what about the funding of the bank and um, what we might call the liquidity risk of banks? I guess that's also a risk that the bank has to deal with. Uh, the risk of you know, yeah. will they? Will the funding continue? Uh, will depositors withdraw their money? Will the lenders stop lending? Yeah, and that's that's a key part of uh, the risk management in, in banks. Uh, that is liquidity risk. Uh, that is that you have money available when you have to pay someone. someone. <laughs> and uh, As simple as that. It's quite simple, actually. Yeah, but how do you work to, you know, because banks have experienced liquidity crisis many times. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, even you know, and so even the the two thousand eight crisis, you could say, was in in, in essence a liquidity crisis. Uh, in the uh, yeah, yeah, and th- this has to do with uh, this maturity transformation that you take on short term deposits, uh, which is payable actually mostly now. <laughs> uh, immediately, you can draw on your accounts uh, every day <laughs> with no notice to the bank that you'd re- take a. Withdraw. So, um, and and the the way the banks handle this in cooperation, I would say, with the central banks, is that you can have cash balances with the central bank or reserves, or you keep on your balance sheet liquid assets. That is, uh, either you can sell it outright in the market, or uh, which is probably the way the banks uh, see it most, that you have available assets that can be deposited with or used as a collateral with the central bank to raise short-term funding from the central bank. And uh, yeah, uh, um, When I talk about the, the liquidity risks or the liability side uh, of the bank's balance sheet with the, my students, uh, I typically you know, uh, make this very simple distinction between uh, the deposits uh, that uh, you, know, you and me uh, put into the bank as one type of funding, and then the loans that the uh, that the banks have um, as a part of their funding, and uh, they they lend in money. Yes, 
Uh, and uh, my question is really, uh, what do you think is the most stable type of funding between those two types? It's, it's definitely the deposit side. Yeah, yeah, that was what I was thinking as well. But, you know, the depositors, they could immediately withdraw their money. While if the lenders, they typically have, you know, they've lent money for three years or five years. Isn't it that, in a way, uh, well, more stable? The, the reason why the deposits are so stable uh, is uh, partly due to this insurance from, from the government side. So the deposit uh, the, insurance. The, the deposit insurance, yes. It's, mm. it's quite uh, important uh, part of that. Uh, to that, I will now add that uh, uh, deposits have now got a very strong position in, uh, in the creditor hierarchy of, of the banks. That, that is uh, the normal deposits. They will have the best position if if a bank should fail. Yeah, so the chance that the, so the, the, the deposit will get lost is, is really it's, not. It's very, very, very little. Mm. So this would, would uh, reassure the depositors that, that yes. there is no need for them to, yeah. to withdraw the, the, their money. And, yeah. and there is another element to it as well, and that is uh, on a system basis. If, even though you take out deposits from one bank, you will probably put it into a... <laughs> Another bank. Yeah, there's no alternative, no? So, uh, uh, so yeah. in total, that will mm. make up a very stable funding source yeah. for the system. So, so the banks will typically strive towards having a fairly high share of, uh, of their funding from deposits. Yes. But has, din, has this uh, changed over time? Uh, yes, due to the, uh, the fact that uh, the growth in lending has been stronger than the growth in deposits. You have seen a significant drop in, 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 uh, in the percentage of deposits to loans. Yeah, so, but, uh, but then if the deposits are more stable uh, fun type of funding, this yeah. means in practice that um, the liquidity risk of the banks have somehow increased then. Yes, due to more reliance on the capital markets for, for for taking up bonds and, and uh, securities from the capital markets as a funding source, yeah. yes. But from my experience, that this is this is a development that's, that is uh, different in different countries. So I, I think in, in Norway, for example, the deposit share is still much higher than it would be in a, in a British bank or a US bank or... Not, not necessarily so, because uh, here you can find in, in the US, for instance, uh, deposit to loan ratios is probably much higher there and, than you can see in, in European banks. And that has to do with the, the use of securitization. Yeah. They are offloading very much of their assets to the capital markets. So that's, uh, that's, that's a significant difference between the US and the uh, European market is that in, in Europe and in particular in the Nordic countries, mortgages, house mortgages, are still on the bank balances, while in the US that has been taken over by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and and put into the the capital market. Yeah, so there there we are with back to one of the differences that yes. I talked about in the beginning. Yeah, so 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 banks do a lot then to to handle uh, these risks that we talked about, and uh, but um, 
you cannot decide completely for yourself how you deal with this risk because there are regulations and uh, from 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 the state and also from the EU here in Europe regarding how banks should operate. So, what would you say is the is the most important types of regulations that you know affect how the bank handle these risks? It's the capital requirements, of course, which. Is it's decided then that the banks need uh, some sort of a ratio of uh, loss absorbing capital towards the risk weighted assets as it's called where you take all your assets and you you, you say take a risk weighting on it meaning that if a mortgage a host mortgage is typically risk weighted to to 25% while uh, a loan to a corporate is 50%. So you need uh, double up capital for lending to a corporate compared with with host mortgages. Yeah and and my 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 experience is that, is that these rules have been, you know, tightened a lot in the last 25 years. If you look at the capital requirements in the early 1990s uh, before the Norwegian banking crisis, at least, uh, and today, there are some substantial differences, aren't there? Yes, in particular following the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, I would say. Uh, would say uh, before that, uh, the uh, capital requirements was quite stable, actually. But uh, because if, when we started with Basel One in eight, 1989, it was. 8% minimum requirement mm-hmm. and that uh, is still 8% minimum requirement now but what has happened is that on top of the minimum requirements you have got a lot of buffer requirements which means that uh, for Norwegian banks today I would say over the last 10 years uh, the requirements for for uh, the tier 1 the common equity tier one capital that is the best capital and the most uh, loss absorbing capital it has been tripled mm-hmm. so it, there is indeed been a, been an increase in the requirements that yes you, yeah um, and so this should also you know indicate that the the banks today both you know inside the banks they are working more with credit risks and other types of risk more seriously they know more about it and also um the regulations seem to indicate that, or the development in regulations seem to indicate that the banks today are, you know, less prone to crisis than before. Yeah, is that your? Is that? Uh, I think that's the common view, uh, both among bankers, but also among regulators and and politicians. That is, uh, the system is much stronger today than it was uh, till the financial crisis in two thousand and seven. Okay, so but then okay, okay. Let's see what happens in the next in coming years. But uh, uh, I want you just to go to back again to you. You started off here talking about that you came into the DNB in 1989, and uh, as we living in Norway knows, the year later the banking system in Norway was in a deep crisis, or at least from 91, 92, and the three largest commercial banks had to be taken over by the government, um, and you were there in DNB and uh, can you just tell us a little bit about this banking crisis? What kind of crisis was it? 
It was a solidity crisis, clearly. Uh, and what pro- do you mean when you say solidity crisis? Well, that, that is that the value of your assets uh, was, uh, well, due to loan losses, it was reduced significantly and uh, the, uh, the equity in the system was uh, quite small. So uh, in 1991, I think, two, two of the banks, Focus Bank and, uh, and Credit Carson, the situation was clearly that the the value of the asset side was less than the the debt they had on on the balance sheet. So there was a, a negative uh, equity position, and and the banks had to be refinanced by by the government with, with huge injections of new equity. Yeah, because in when talking to my students, I make a lot of this difference between you know the solidity or solvency crisis as one type of banking crisis and the liquidity crisis, which is a different type of, of, of banking crisis, really. So, so what you're saying here is that the Norwegian banking crisis of the early 90s was definitely a, a solidity or solvency crisis because it, it was concerned with how loans had gone sour and so the value of the asset side of the bank had to be written down and the banks were basically insolvent, huh? And so the only way to save these banks was to somehow inject equity. Yes. And no, no one in the market really wanted to inject uh, capital in, in banks that were insolvent. So you had yes. to rely on the, on the government in this yeah. case. And I think a point to make there is that uh, to assess and value the balance sheet of a bank is quite difficult. To, to put a number to the value of all your loans when you have uh, a macroeconomic crisis going on, as we had in in uh, around the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So that uncertainty means that uh, private investors will not come forward with, with new equity in such a situation. So the only source you ha- are left with then is, is, is the government and... Uh, they put up more money and they got a very good return on it. Yeah, because that's this, you know, <laughs> there's a big debate about this. Why should taxpayers, you know, uh, uh, save the bankers uh, when they have, you know, run their business into insolvency? Um, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts about that. Uh, you say that the Norwegian state, the Norwegian state, earned money on this. Oh yes. How how come? It was highly profitable uh, to put uh, in in money, have the the banks uh, going forward. Uh, you had uh, the economy picked up again, and uh, the equity in the banks uh, earned a lot of money through, throughout the 1990s. And uh, somehow you can say that the value come back again, and. Uh, to refinance a bank which is afterwards uh, picking up again. It's quite, quite uh, interesting seen from, from an investor perspective. But, a, but there is a risk there. So I would say that uh, this return was well deserved for the government. Yeah, so, so this, but this, uh, this discussion about the bailouts as you know, a way of saving banks is, of course, something that is... Is out there, but uh, today we talk more and more about you know um, saving banks experiencing insolvency crisis through bail-in. Can you explain what, what would a bail-in uh, uh, rescue look that, like? 
a bail-in would mean that uh, the bondholders or a class of bondholders will convert their debt to equity in the bank and be the new owners. So basically the funders of the bank, not yeah. the depositors, but yeah. those who have uh, lent money to the bank through yeah. bond, bonds will have to... Yeah. That, this is professional investors. Yeah. So, so they, they will now, going forward with the new bail-in system, they will be in a position to take the role of the government refinancing the banks. That's the idea. Yes, this is a new regulation that's coming, yes. coming out. This is a new regulation coming after the financial crisis, yes. And uh, it's, the jury is still out whether this new system will work or not. So, so basically what you're saying that uh, lenders uh, to banks, uh, they have to accept as a part of their lending that if, if the bank uh, collapses, then they have to... Uh, uh, convert their their deposit no their lending to to equity and is that uh, is, is there then a problem to to get funding or no it seems that uh, investors are willing to 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 take that risk so uh, but the pricing of these instruments uh, is is not straightforward uh, somehow you can say that uh, it's it's more risky but but uh, I, I guess if there is a situation where you have a bail-in, I, some some hedge fund would maybe see it uh, the different way that this is an opportunity because this is some sort of an equity option, <laughs> yeah. and if if uh, things uh, go right, then probably the new new owners will see the same thing as the government in the 1990s that uh, this will pay off. Yeah, you get actually an opportunity to, yes. to to so, but there is different views on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so so in general, when I talk to you, uh, okay, you have been working in banking for the last thirty years. So I guess your your idea that what you have been doing in these years is to to make ba- the bank more you know stable, more, more robust. So to me, it seems uh, that you are quite optimistic when it comes to the future of banking crisis, that the we might have less of them, or? I, I think so, yes. Uh, the system is more uh, solid today, definitely. And we know uh, much much more about how to deal with risks in, in, in general. And the, an important part of this is actually that we have much uh, better uh, information systems that we... we we know the portfolios much better now because of the IT and uh, IT technology and information and better uh, accounts. I mean, it's more transparent now uh, what's going on, not only in banks, but also in, 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 in corporates in, in general. So, uh, yes. And it's interesting that you say this when we are in the situation we are in now with the corona crisis and the economies around the world are experiencing, you know, very difficult times. A lot of businesses are, you know, in trouble. So I guess this must affect the banks somehow because you have lent money to, to all of these businesses that are not earning any money. So what have the banks been doing, you know, to to help their customers and what will happen in a year or two. It's quite interesting to to hear the finance minister saying that this time the banks is a part of the solution and not 
the cause of the problem, <laughs> which is in a way true, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so what the banks do now, I think they they will do the same assessment uh, as the government do if the the corporates uh, have a short term uh, liquidity problem, but they are still solvent. Then it's no problem to grant more loans to them or give them some sort of a payment holidays for for their. Uh, Previous contracts with with the bank. Uh, that's, I think that's. Uh, but but the banks also will take one a hell of a beating uh, in the sense that the loan losses, as you have seen this year, is it's quite high, and that has to do with uh, some of the corporates have, obviously due to the corona, uh, have their uh, business model ruined. I mean, uh, all these. Yeah. So this is this had at some point this has to affect uh, the value of the asset side of the of the banks. Okay. The banks have to take a beating in mm. in some of the sectors. Yes, because there is uh, this um, sudden and and uh, I mean businesses which uh, one day is is profitable the next day they have no customers i mean <laughs> you, you you can't blame the customer no but but uh, but uh, it, it still it's, it's it's interesting that you do not seem very worried because um, in my, in my in my view it's it's at some point uh, this uh, devaluation of the assets would wouldn't it eventually lead somehow to the Solvency problems or for banks, or do you think that their capital position is so strong that it I is think that the first thing to mention here is that the first line of defense for the banks that is the, the net interest income mm-hmm. and and the earnings before loan losses, mm-hmm. and uh, I think uh, in Norway this year probably the loan losses will be less than the uh, the earnings before loan losses, meaning that even this year, the banks will be able to to build capital. Yeah, because they still earn uh, money yeah, on their net yes. interest. Yeah. So, uh, and that's a significant difference in in the Nordic area compared with, let's say, Southern Europe. That in 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 our area, the banks have a return on equity in the size of ten around ten percent, while in in the rest of the Europe, you can see. Three, four percent, and and that's a huge buffer yeah. to take up loan losses. So this is the main reason why you are not so worried. I'm not worried uh, here in in the Nordic area now. Okay, I think that's a, that's a good way to stop uh, and end this uh, this uh, podcast on banking. We we talked a lot about uh, why we need banks, what how banks earn money. And the risks that banks face, and it seems to me that uh, at least the banker who have been here is quite optimistic when it comes to the future of financial crisis, um, at least when it comes to how the banks work. So thank you for coming and sharing your uh, experience and knowledge about banking and the development of risk handling in banks. And uh, of course, we hope that you are right in your assessment of the future of banking. Thank you very much.
This is a BI production. Listen to more podcasts. Go to bi.no slash podcasts.